0: Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. We have many visitors with us, and we are extremely thankful for your presence. i encourage encouraged to have you here and uh, hope that your, your time with us can be an encouragement to you as well. I invite you to open up your Bibles with us as we study today. Uh, if there's anything of, of any value to your spiritual life that's going to be said from this pulpit, it's not going to come from the mind of Grady Huggins. It's going to come from the mind of God and from His Word. I want to wish everybody a happy Father's Day uh, as we in our country are are celebrating that today. And there's really no better way that we could spend that than to spend time worshiping and honoring our Heavenly Father uh, and remembering all that He has done for us, remembering the price that He paid to adopt us, uh, as we will here in, in a little while. But today, I I want us to consider something that I think will have particular application uh, for parents among us, uh, but maybe even more a direct application to our young people. And that is the idea of the age of accountability. Uh, You may have heard that phrase before. It's not a phrase that you would find in the Bible, but the principles that we are referring to when you use that phrase are principles that I think we will see within the scriptures. Uh, this idea of the age of accountability is a, a phrase that has been coined to refer to the time in a child's life when they mature enough to become accountable before God, uh, to be guilty of sins that they commit, and thus a candidate to uh, obey the gospel. And that certainly is something that the scriptures have a good deal to say about. But I want you to notice on the screen here, I, I put the word age. In quotation marks. It's not that there is some certain age that, you know, on the, the child's 12th or 13th birthday, when they blow out the candles, all of a sudden now they're, they're magically accountable before God. That's certainly not what we see when we come to the scriptures. Uh, but there certainly is a point in each child's life when they do become accountable. Uh, and I think we'll see some principles within the scriptures that won't tell us exactly when that is but will tell us at least maybe how that occurs. And so I hope our study today will be helpful first and foremost for our young people as they consider this in their own lives. Uh, As some of uh, our young people here may even be considering their own relationship with the Lord uh, and whether or not to commit their lives to the Lord uh, in, in baptism. And I hope it will be helpful to parents and grandparents among us, and really all of us, as we seek to, uh, to be an influence, a positive influence uh, on young people around us. But the first principle that I think we need to consider as we think of this idea of accountability is that there is an age of innocence. And the Bible talks about this very clearly. This passage that we just read in Luke chapter 18 uh, Jesus here calls uh, the, the the young people the little children to him and he, he holds them up and he says those who are in the kingdom of God are such as these he holds up a, a little child as a, a symbol of the type of heart that we need to have if we're going to be within his kingdom that we need to recapture a, a childlike heart of innocence. And so uh, children are certainly at one point in their lives not lost uh, and not exactly saved either. You might just say they are, are safe. They, they are not guilty of sin that they need to be saved from. If you want to look at a parallel passage with me in Matthew chapter 18, if you'll open your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 18 we see a similar instance here in verse three and four where Jesus' disciples have been talking about who is greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus kind of takes them aside here in verse two, he calls a child to himself and sets him before them. And he says in verse three, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as the child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If we want to enter into the kingdom, if we want to be in a saving relationship with the Lord, he says, then you need to become like one of these children. You need to be converted. You need to change your heart back to this childlike state of of humility, uh, of being moldable, teachable, of being innocent as well. I think we we see this idea in, in many of our English words that we use, To refer to us turning to the Lord, we talk about repentance or restoration or or reconciliation. Uh, And in the English language, we have that little prefix re at the beginning to to, uh, give us this idea of of returning to something. And while not all of the the Greek equivalents of those words would, would have that same idea, certainly that is a biblical principle of returning to something that we once had. Um, For instance, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, as Peter is preaching there, he uh, calls them to action by saying in verse 19, repent and return or turn again so that your sins may be wiped away. The idea of returning is that we've left something, we need to go back to it. So I think even in that idea, we see this idea that there is at one point in our lives where we are in a, a perfect relationship with the Lord, and yet we have each chosen to stray from that. And we need to return, uh, to turn back in penitence. We need to regain this relationship that we once had with God. We need to, to heal the wounds of sin and be made whole again, to be restored. And we see the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 30, uh, verse 20, where Paul is speaking to the brethren at Corinth. And he says there in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. When Jesus is holding up this child, this, this is the type of heart that you need to have. He's not saying go back to the immaturity and naivety of, of youth, but he is saying you, in, in reference to evil, need to become like a little child. You need to go back to the innocence of youth. You know, do you think that if if we were born sinners, if we were born stained by sin, that that Paul would make that statement? You know, in in evil, become like a a totally hereditarily depraved child. Well, obviously that's not what he's saying. No, he's referring to the innocence of youth, that they are unstained by evil. And uh, somewhat recently in our Tuesday night class on Psalms, I know we covered Psalm 51. And many will go to that passage where David says in Psalm 51 in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. And see see there, David says he he was born in sin. He was born stained by sin. But I think we need to recognize that David is writing in poetic language. Um, and is using hyperbole, as, as we often do. You might think, if, if you're talking to your child, you might say, well, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. What, what do you mean? Do you, do you mean that you're actually keeping a tally there on the fridge, and you, you just happened to, to cross the thousand mark? No, no, you, you're making a, a hyperbole to emphasize a point. And I think that's what we see in Psalm 51 as well. In fact, we don't even see it in verse 5, but Psalm 51 in verse 4 David says there, against you and you only, I have sinned. Now, is that very literally the case? Well, I mean, certainly first and foremost, David's sin is against God, a breaking of of his character and his image within David's life. But David certainly sinned against a whole lot of other people. Uriah is dead. And the other men that fought in that battle with Uriah, there were probably others who died. He uh, committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba. D- David had sinned against many people, and yet he's emphasizing there, against you, you only have sinned. Very next verse, in a very similar way, he says, from, from my mother's womb, I've gone astray, is basically what he's saying. From day one, I have not been serving you like I need to Uh, And so, clearly, as we look through the rest of the scripture, there is this age of innocence. We're not born sinners. We're not born in sin, stained by sin. But we are even urged to have a childlike heart of innocence. In evil be as infants. We see the same concept, if you want to turn your Bibles with me, to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is recounting, God's sentencing of the Israelites to wander in the wilderness uh, and how because of, of those who rebelled against God and refused to go into the promised land uh, after the sending in of the 12 spies, uh, they were sentenced to, to wander in the wilderness until all those aged 20 and over um, would, would die in the wilderness. Uh, here notice what Moses says about that in uh, chapter 1 and verse 39. He says, moreover, your little ones who you said would become prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. And so this, this younger generation, some of which had no knowledge of good and evil, he says, are the ones who will then enter into the land. So there is an age at which we have no Knowledge of good and evil, a time when a child is innocent. And so there must be some point, maybe not some age exactly, but some point in each child's life when they gain a knowledge of good and evil. And so I want us to think about that idea of knowledge of good and evil. Really, the only other time that we see that phrase in Scripture is back in Genesis chapter 2, um, 2 and 3. If you want to turn your Bibles back to Genesis 2 with me, here in Genesis 2, we see God giving Adam and Eve their first law. He puts them in the garden in chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The one law that they're given is that they should not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What, what does that mean? What, what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil here? And why is it that they, they weren't to partake of it? Well, let, let's read a little bit further, see if we can get a little more perspective here. In chapter 3, starting in verse 4, we see what Satan has to say about what this tree will do. Says in Genesis three, starting verse four, the serpent said to the woman, "You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." So here, Satan's testimony, at least, of what's going to happen when they eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, is that their eyes are going to be opened, and they are going to know good and evil the way that God does. Well. Is that what happens? Look in verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Was what Satan said true? Part of it, their eyes were opened They gained a knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, if you look later on in verse 22, God says this from his own mouth. Genesis 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God says he has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So there's at least a sense in which what Satan said was true. They, they gained a knowledge of good and evil. Why didn't God want them to have that? If, if this makes them more like God, isn't that a good thing? Did eating of the tree make them more like God or less like God? In one small way, here they gained this experiential knowledge of good and evil. They, they taste evil. They partake of evil. Is that how God knows good and evil? Because he takes part in evil? No. And so in one small way, yes, they they gained a knowledge of good and evil. But in the way that truly mattered, they had broken God's perfect image within them. They no longer reflected God's perfect character. And so we see here this idea of them gaining this knowledge of good and evil through experiencing it for themselves. It's not that God wanted man to be ignorant of good and evil. In fact, God had already given them one law, I think it's right for us to presume that God would teach man everything that he needed to know from his own mouth, and yet man, not content with that, wanted to experience it for himself. And so man here, by taking part in evil, by tasting, by experiencing evil, gains this experiential knowledge of good and evil. But I want to ask a few questions here as we think about this as it applies to us. Did Adam and Eve need a full knowledge of good and evil in order to sin? Here, they, they don't have a full knowledge of good and evil, and yet they commit sin. What is it that they knew? They knew God's law. They knew what God said. Uh, and so, while they might not have had their, their full moral sensibilities at this point, Uh, They were able to commit sin because they had a knowledge of an objective moral law that God had given them. They were uh, aware of certain objective moral standards that they were capable of violating. And I think what we'll see as we look through the rest of the scriptures as it applies to us is that there is some parallel here to us. That, that really the core of, of what puts us in a position where we are capable of sinning is some knowledge, not, not, a, not necessarily a full knowledge of, of God's objective moral law, but some knowledge of, of a right and wrong standard handed down to us by God himself. If we look into the New Testament, we see that it's really a knowledge of law whether that be directly understanding uh, law given to us by God or or knowing it um, in our our conscience. It's a knowledge of law that makes us in a position where we are capable of sinning. Uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, we read, where there is no law, there also is no violation. Also in Romans 5 verse 13, sin is not imputed, reckoned, or accounted when there is no law. And so we can only become guilty of sin if there is some law that we are capable of violating. Turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. I think perhaps out of any passage in the scripture, this gives us a picture of this age or or moment of accountability uh, more than anything else. Here Paul writing uh, in Romans 7, starting in verse 7, if you'll read with me. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul says that the law is good. The law is right. The law gives us an awareness of what is right and wrong. But as the law gives us an opportunity to do right, it also gives us an opportunity to do wrong, to choose to violate that law. We see also in verse 11, he says, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me through it and killed me. It's it's through a knowledge of the law, of the commandment, that just like Adam and Eve, they have an opportunity to violate that commandment and do wrong. But notice what Paul says in verse 9. Paul writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. When was Paul alive apart from law? Paul was born under the old covenant. Paul was born a Jew uh, into a covenant relationship with the Lord, circumcised the eighth day to to ratify that, that covenant. Paul was never alive outside of law. So how can Paul say, I was once alive apart from law? I think the logical conclusion here is that Paul is talking about a time where he had no consciousness of God's law. And yet there was a time where he gained a certain consciousness of God's law. And sin took the opportunity and killed him. And so, for each of us, there's, there's a, a time where we have no knowledge of, of objective moral law. And yet, at some point in our lives, the commandment comes. And we become conscious of some objective moral standard that we are amenable to. And at that point, we have the opportunity to choose to obey that law or to disobey that law in a very similar fashion to Adam and Eve. And what we're talking about here is not a simple acknowledgement of law. You know, a a three-year-old child can know if I misbehave in church, I'm going to get a spanking. You know, that, that doesn't mean that they are consciously aware of some objective moral law that makes their actions wrong. Right? They just know that if they act that way, mom and dad are going to punish them. It's kind of a, a cause and effect understanding of law. Our, our dog Maggie even has that understanding of law. There, there was one time when we were in St. Louis that we came home from services and uh, Maggie was still somewhat of a puppy. We had just been giving her a little more freedom and we walked through the door and immediately her ears go down and her tail goes between her legs. She knew she had done something wrong right? She had chewed up one of our pillows. That never happened again. But she had a, an understanding of having done something wrong. Why? Was it because there was this objective moral awareness within Maggie that she knew chewing up pillows was wrong? No. No, but she had an awareness of standards that we had given to her. And that she didn't live up to those standards, there was going to be consequences. And so, in the same way, a child, certainly at a very early age, can have an awareness of, of right and wrong in the sense of cause and effect, in the sense of a standard handed down by, by parents or whoever it may be. But there must come at some point an awareness of, of, of a deeper, objective, moral standard. This isn't wrong because mom and dad said this is wrong. This is wrong because, because it's wrong. And when we gain that consciousness of law, that's where sin takes the opportunity. That's where the commandment comes, sin takes the opportunity, and just as Paul says here, it kills us. And so, in a very similar fashion, really, to Adam and Eve, we... we, at some point, taste evil. We experience evil, at which point, uh, I think in a very similar way, our our eyes are opened to a, a full acknowledgement and recognition of our own guilt before God. And we see this same idea in James chapter 4 and verse 17. There, James writes, To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's a knowledge of what we are to do that gives us the opportunity to disobey that knowledge. But is the implication there that as long as I'm ignorant, as long as I don't know, then it's not sin? I think we need to recognize uh, maybe another idea within the scriptures. And that is a certain accountability for ignorance. If you want to turn your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 5, Certainly, God does not hold us accountable for that which we are incapable of knowing or understanding. Uh, God is a just God. But but notice here in Leviticus chapter 5, the instructions given about uh, unwillful sin. If you'll read with me in Leviticus 5 verse 17, it says, now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall be punished. Verse 18, it goes on to describe the type of offering that was needed to to be given for uh, a sin of, of ignorance, of unawareness. Obviously, there's some point at which he becomes aware of this sin. But it says there in verse 19, it is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. It's possible that I can be ignorant of doing something and I still be doing wrong. I still be guilty of violating God's perfect standard. And we understand this uh, in, in the realm of, of physical law as re- well. You know, I can be guilty of speeding even if I tell the officer, well, I, I didn't see the, the speed limit sign. Well, too bad. It was there. <laughs> you, you, you should have seen it. You should have uh, abode by it. Uh, And so I think we see that we are accountable not only when we do have the knowledge, but when we're capable of having the knowledge. When it is available to us, um, we may be ignorant and yet guilty because it is willful ignorance, because it is negligent ignorance. And we see a, a more thorough treatment of this in Numbers chapter 15, Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 22, we see a a long instruction about the type of of offerings that were to be given for unintentional sin. But I I want to focus in on verse 30 and 31 here. Numbers 15, starting in verse 30, says, But the person who does anything defiantly... Whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So here he has just given all these instructions on how ignorant, unwillful sin can be forgiven. God is merciful towards that. God gives us an opportunity to, to, to be cleansed of that. And yet if we continue in defiant sin against the Lord, he says that de- defiant sin uh, is not going to be uh, given this same provision. And so certainly God is, is, is merciful to our ignorance. Uh, And I think we see as well that God is is merciful when at one point we are rebelliously sinning against him and yet we turn back to him. But we are still accountable for our ignorance. We see the same concept in Luke chapter 12 and a parable that Jesus tells here. Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. Here we read that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in according with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. They're still guilty, still wrong, still sin. And yet the one who did not know here is shown mercy. And so I think we we see this concept that just because I'm ignorant doesn't mean I'm not guilty. Maybe I'm ignorant because of my negligence. Maybe God has revealed that to me, has shown that to me, and I haven't uh, paid attention to it. Like like the person who's driving past uh, the speed limit sign and pays no attention to it. Well, it's there. It was given that I might know. And I'm going to be accountable for that. So God is merciful in understanding to our ignorance or weakness when we have violated his law, but that within itself does not remove the guilt. It doesn't exempt us from the consequences. Why? Because we should know, because we are capable of knowing. God has revealed his law to us so that we can know. The commandment has come in our lives, whether we've listened to it or not. Uh, and so it's only those who are not yet able to comprehend God's moral law who are unaccountable for violating it. And so we do see there. there is this age of innocence. There is at In each person's life, a time where the commandment comes, where we gain some measure of knowledge of an objective moral standard. And through violating it, very similar to Adam and Eve, we gain that full awareness of of good and evil. But a closely related question to this idea of accountability is when is somebody ready to obey the gospel? Certainly in order to have those sins washed away, and to have them forgiven, there, there are a few other things that you need to know that by God's grace have been made available to you. We need to come to know uh, the, the message of the gospel itself. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 gives us one aspect of that. In verse 6 we read, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we need to have a a knowledge of God himself, uh, an awareness, a belief in his existence, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That what the Bible says about eternity, what the Bible says about God, is true. Romans 10, 9, and 10 gives us a further knowledge that we need to have in that. Uh, Verse 9 and 10, we read, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need to have a a belief, a conviction that Jesus is Lord. We need to recognize his authority um, and recognize what it means for him to be the Lord of our lives. We need to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he did conquer death on our behalf and is sitting at the right hand of God on high. In order to make that confession. I think an area that very closely ties with this idea of accountability is the idea of godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, we read about how there is a worldly sorrow that leads only to death. And yet there is a godly sorrow or a sorrow according to the will of God that leads to repentance um, and salvation. And so we can't just have a sorrow over our sins that, you know, I I know the earthly consequences for them. I I know that mom and dad aren't going to be pleased with it. I need to have an awareness of what my sin means against God. That I haven't just violated what mom and dad said. I, I violated what God said. I've ruined his perfect image. The glory of his character within my heart has been marred. I have failed in the purpose for which he created me and I need to be restored. We need to have that type of knowledge uh, of our own sin, of our own guilt, that we might cry out as the people did in Acts chapter 2. And brethren, what shall we do? We, we don't like to preach about sin. We don't like to hear about our own guilt. We don't like to, to, to preach about hell. But brethren, if, if we stop preaching about that, and salvation loses its significance. Now, salvation means you're saved from something, right? We need to have a full awareness of our guilt, of our helplessness before God. That we might cry out, that we might have hearts that are willing to repent, to change, to turn to Him, that by God's grace we can bury the old man of sin in baptism, we can be raised clean to walk in newness of life so what about you today? Are you aware of your own sin? Are you aware that you are a broken creation? God created you to reflect his glory, to reflect his image. And the things that you have done wrong aren't just wrong because mom and dad think they're wrong or the world thinks they're wrong. They're wrong because God said they're wrong. And because of our rebellion, we have made ourselves enemies of God. Sometimes when uh, a young person would uh, come and and ask about being baptized, one of the questions that I've heard asked before, and I think it's it's an appropriate question to ask, is, well, at this point, would you say you're a friend of God or an enemy of God? They say, a friend of God, say, stay that way as long as you can. That's exactly what you need to be. But brethren person who recognizes their need for baptism is the person who recognizes that they're an enemy of god baptism is not something that good people do that isn't something that bad people do to become good it's by god's grace that we can be saved if we're willing to submit ourselves to him to turn our hearts over to him are you willing to do that today if you recognize that you are condemned before god that you need his grace to cleanse you so you can have a hope of eternity in his presence why wait Make that commitment today. And if you have made that commitment, but you've dug back up the old man of sin, and he's alive and well, maybe not so well, won't you make the changes that you need to? If there's anything that we can do to help you today, to make your life right with the Lord, by God's grace, you can be forgiven. Won't you please let us know how we can help at this time uh, as we sing?